guys continue to make your way in have a seat good morning welcome to Emmanuel fellowship how's everybody this morning awesome thank you for the wonderful Stacy uh, it's good to see you guys this morning welcome to Emmanuel fellowship guys my name is Craig and I'm one of the pastors here at the church uh, we say this every week but what we want to communicate to you regularly is that as the love of Christ pours into you the love of Christ will pour out of you this is this is our way of describing what Jesus distills as the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all of your heart mind soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself as Christ pours into you as we love God and he pours into us through his son Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that love will pour out of you and that's what we hope and we pray that you experience this morning as you join us in our gathering in fact if you're a guest with us this morning we want to welcome you particularly uh, we are glad that you are here and we would love to connect with you uh, but we want you to know that you're welcome here and that we have a gift for you on the table as you come in there is a book called gentle and lowly we would love to to give this to you as a gift if you were a visitor with us this morning. This is a fantastic resource. It can be used as a devotional or you can read it as a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for saint, for Sinners and Sufferers, and we would commend that to you. Um, we have a few things this morning that we want to mention to you. Um, there are bulletins as you come in. You will also notice inserted into the bulletin and also separate is a nice colorful little insert. Uh, this is a uh, this serves two purposes. One, it has our current sermon series, uh, which is the, sec the second uh, sermon is today. It's a fall sermon series called The Gospel Story. So on one side of this sheet, you will have all of the sermons, uh, all of the texts and all of the headings for the sermons, as well as the, pre the preacher who will be preaching that message. Uh, those are there for you to read those scriptures ahead of time, if you wish, and to be pray praying for whoever's going to be preaching that Sunday. Uh, on the other side, however, is... Um, is a calendar of events uh, for the coming for this fall. So for the next couple of months, uh, there's a listing of the calendar events on that sheet. We would love for you to grab one of these, take them, put them in your Bible, put one on your refrigerator, uh, refer to this often for what's going on in the life of our church. Uh, however, we always want you to know that this information is continually on our website, uh, on, our, on particularly on the hub on our website, which is a manual hub org, And we would love for you to go there on a regular basis. Anything that you need additional information on regarding these, uh, these events, which are more than events, they're actually next steps. We all have a next step in our walk with Christ, and that's what this is for, uh, to encourage you and engage you in some next steps in the life of our church. And so please check the website, emmanuelhub.org, often for further details, and also for things like signups and things of that nature for some of these events as well. But there's a couple that I want to point out to you in our bulletin this morning. Uh, first of all, next weekend is the women's retreat. Uh, so I mentioned that the registration is closed and they already have uh, everything that they need uh, for that. But um, Gerilyn Keller and her team have worked tirelessly preparing for this. And I, I'd mention this so that you can have the ladies of our church in prayer. Uh, over the next week and into the weekend, particularly the men, be praying for your wives, be praying for the ladies as they prepare their hearts for this weekend. Um, it's one thing to go on a retreat and be there physically, but it takes work to be there spiritually and mentally a lot of times. And, and so we want to be praying and asking God to prepare the hearts of our ladies as they uh, get ready to engage uh, their women's retreat this weekend or next weekend. Second thing is, is on the second and the fourth weeks, Sundays of every month, uh, we have a West County care ministry team that goes to West County 
Care Center here in Baldwin uh, on the second and fourth Sundays from 2 p.m. to 3.15. And this ministry, this ministry team um, will put on a time of fellowship and worship for, these, uh, for this senior care center. Uh, if you want to be a part of that team, let Jim Donahue know or go on the hub and you can sign up to find out more information. But they will be there this afternoon from 2 to 3.15. Uh, on the second the second Sunday of the month. Um, the last thing I have is gospel communities either have started, uh, I think there's one or two that are starting this week and next week. Um, so if you have not plugged into a gospel community we, and you call uh, Emmanuel Church your home, we would love for you to be in a gospel community. Gospel communities are our small groups that meet weekly, um, and it's where the majority of life uh, happens in, in the context of our church. What we do on Sunday mornings is a very small portion of what um, God is calling calling us to on our walk with him. Sunday mornings are critical and important, um, but community and the life in community to know and to be known uh, is what God has for us. And so uh, we would encourage you to sign up for a gospel community uh, if you are a, a part of our church. If you're not a part of our church and you're interested in learning more, let us know and we'll, we'll get you connected. Um, guys, uh, we thank you that you're here today. You could have spent your morning doing any number of things. It's a beautiful fall day, a little rainy, but beautiful nonetheless. So we welcome you here. Let's go to the Lord now and worship him. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carol. I'm back here on the piano, so you can't see me very well. Um, but I have to call to worship. Uh, the first song we're going to sing, I just want to share a little bit about it. Um, our former church, the West Penn Bible Church, we sang this song, Days of Elijah, and it became a favorite of ours. And... Um, there were times when, though, I, I questioned, what, what, what's this song really about? Um, why is this the days of Elijah and of Moses and of Ezekiel? We're New Testament people right now, and uh, yet the Old Testament people lived so long ago, why did they apply? Um, and so I did a lot of reading on this, and I, I, I know a lot of it is common sense, that they apply to us because the prophets are the ones that God used to make himself known, there were words that would have never been expressed if it wasn't for these, these prophets. And in Acts 3.21, New Testament, God said that he would restore all things, as he promised uh, long ago through his prophets, and that now he's speaking through his son. And then he has a plan to refresh and restore us and just to give us future hope. So they laid the groundwork for that. When God said, I will restore all things, that's a, a prophecy for future fulfillment. He's not done yet. He's not done with us. He's not done with the restoration. And he wants to continue to restore us. We are his people that he's restoring. He's restoring our nations, our, our families, our rulers, our relationships, our health, everything. Um, in Matthew 17, there was Peter, James, and John, and they were walking along a road, and they looked up on a hill, and they saw the transfiguration of Christ, but he was standing with Moses and Elijah, the Old Testament prophets, and they were so afraid that they went down on their knees, and they bowed their heads, and Christ walked up to them and touched them and said, do not be afraid, and uh, they looked up, and all they saw was Christ, and that was symbolic in that now the prophets are um, in heaven, and Christ is still with us, restoring us. He is the one that God is speaking through now. But this is why we sing this song. But this is an important part of our lives, 
to know about the prophets from the uh, Old Testament. So let's sing this song and glorify God for his perfect plan and the way that he reveals his truths to us.
I'm on. Okay, good morning. Sorry. I was going to tell you to take a seat, but you already beat me. Um, My name is Kim Tunnell. For those of you who don't know, Sam is lucky and privileged to be married to me and um, asked me if I would uh, give you my testimony today. And I'm excited to give you my testimony, but I'm also a little extra nervous today because I'm choosing to share a part of my testimony that feels really intimate and vulnerable, and I've only shared this part of my testimony in the context of our GC, like, twice. Um, And there was safety, and there was built relationship, but I'm just going to cast my pearls out, if you will, and um, trust that the Lord is going to use that. So, um, thankfully, Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, and so I'm going to rest in my identity as a daughter washing the blood of Christ right now. Um, when I was five years old, I was sexually molested by an older child in my neighborhood. And so right away I was awoken to the realm of um, something that I wasn't supposed to do or something that should not have been done to me. And I instantly felt tons of shame and tons of guilt. And I felt as though it separated me from the children around me, as though I had experienced something that I wasn't supposed to. And so I went through elementary school, um, going to church off and on with my mom and dad. And by the time we hit middle school, we were Christmas and Easter churchgoers. 
not, not a lot of talk about Jesus in the home. Um, and so I was, as an elementary school kid, just kind of was like, that happened, that was bad, and then moved on, is so I thought. And so I got into middle school and had a budding sexuality, and my adolescence was shining through. And I was uh, gripped by lots of shame and lots of guilt and lots of performing and pretending and hiding, not wanting uh, anyone to know what had done been, had been done to me, um, trying to keep that secret to myself. In fact, telling myself that I will never tell anyone these things about my person. I will go to the grave with them. And so... Um, Middle school, I was a hot mess of a child, and my parents were like, we don't know how to handle you. And so uh, a friend of mine who I was getting into tons of trouble with, uh, she was like, hey, I have to go to a church camp that my mom's making me go to. Want to go with me? There won't be drugs, but (laughs) there will be kind people. And so um, I ended up going to church camp between eighth and ninth grade, and it was in that context that I first heard the gospel. And my heart was so tender and made so open to the truth that God made me, God loves me, he died for me, and that I'm not dirty, but I've been made clean. So being receiving the righteousness of Christ was such an incredible moment for me as a 14-year-old. So in my 14-year-old heart and head, I thought, wow, all my past, what was done to me and how I have been processing my sexuality, Um, My sexuality was displaying itself through bisexuality, um, and I was trying on and acting out in habitual sin, um, sexual sin. And so when I was met by Christ, it was like the most incredible thing on the planet. So I got home from camp, I shared it with my family, and was like, oh my gosh, do you know Jesus? And they're like, yeah, we've been to church. And I'm like, no, do you know Jesus? And so I share the love of Christ with my family and tell them that I've given my life to Christ. He is the creator of the world and he created me and he knows me and he loves me and he's not ashamed of me and he accepts me and he welcomes me and he's given me this family that I get to be included in and they accept me. And so my mom and dad started their own faith journey. And later that year in December, my mom and I got baptized together and she was 45 at the time and I was 15. And, um, As I went through high school, I had still kept that part of my story to myself. Um, I was still dealing with habitual uh, sexual uh, acting out in various ways and forms and felt more and more guilt when I would go to church and be around church friends because youth pastor would be up front and say things like, "Uh, okay, guys, this is a you issue. And as a female sitting in the room, I thought, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? that I'm dealing with stuff that should be just a male problem in the room, apparently. And so I had carried even more shame and guilt around my story and thought, okay, church is not a safe place to share all of me, but I know that they accept me and love me to a degree. So then I get into college, and in college I was uh, dealing with some crippling anxiety and tons of shame still, the theme of my story. And so I decided that I wanted to go see a counselor. So I went to see a biblical counselor. Shout out to Covenant Counseling, great counseling. Anyway, so I um, went to see a counselor, and as I was in counseling, um, I had a question of, why did God let that happen to me as five-year-old Kim? And if he was able to do something about it, he could have stopped that. That could have not been a part of my story. Why did that have to be a part of my story? And if it wasn't a part of my story, 
would my entire life look, at, look different? Um, would my sexuality have played out differently? Um, and so as I wrestled through those questions with my counselor, Christ so faithfully brought me to a place of acceptance and to a place where I thought, okay, Christ could have stopped those things from happening, but instead, um, Christ was with me. He was with me in that room. He was with me in that moment. He was with me in my fear. He was weeping. He was angry. He was enraged. And so it wasn't something where I was alone, but Christ was presently and actively with me as five-year-old Kim and had been presently and actively with me through all of my sexual acting out and all of my shame and all of the bisexuality and all the shame that comes with that. And so after I had that moment of clarity and freedom, that's when real sexual freedom started happening in my story and in my life. And I started walking more and more in the power of God's love for me and his care for me, his acceptance of me, that there is no shame in Christ. And then I met Sam. And Sam and I took a class together. We still debate about which class it was. Doesn't matter. Point is, I'm right and he's wrong. But um, we were sitting together in our class and he was like doodling dinosaurs. And I thought, that's cute. And then he was like, hey, you want to hang out sometime? And I'm like, oh, sure. So he and I started a friendship. And then he and I started dating. And he was one of the first people outside of my counselor that I shared my whole story with. And it was through Sam that God, I'm going to cry. It was through Sam that God has shown me so much of his actual love for me um, as a physical, tangible representation of Christ to me. Um, So as I got married, as we've been walking together and journeying together, He knows my story, and it's messy, and um, there's triggers, and there's um, floods of shame, and there's temptations, and these things are being brought into the light over and over again, and I'm finding that Satan kept me in a place of hiding for so long, and I had believed all the lies about, oh, if if they knew this about you, Kim. So um, I decided two years ago at GC, we were sharing testimonies, and I thought, whoa, I think I might actually share this testimony with these small group of people. They're friends. I love them. They know me. And then obviously in my head, I go, oh, but what if? What if they hear this and they reject you? What if they hear this and they go, oh, I can't be your friend anymore? And that was very real for me. And so I trusted God and thought, I'm going for it. And I shared my pearls before our GC. And I was met with the most steadfast, consistent safety and love from a group of people. And I thought, whoa, Christ has kept me in shame and hiding for so long, but he actually has given me a family to be loved by, and there's a place for me and people like me in his church. With sexuality that doesn't fit the normative narrative, there's people like me in his church, and they have a place. For people hiding in sexual sin and habituation and shame, there's a place for you in his his church. And so that was the freedom that I needed in my story. And then last year, I had the opportunity to share again with some new faces. And so today, I'm sharing this with you to say... God actually sets sinners free, and he actually brings healing, and his love is so powerful and so all-consuming that he actually changes lives. So 
praise be to God for his faithfulness and praise be to God that he's allowed me to be a part of his church and given me a story to even share that I've been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. So, amen. Amen. What do I need to say right now? Jiminy Cricket. Oh. <laughs> Praise be to God. Today we're going to continue our series, The Gospel Story, looking at how the entirety of the Bible tells the story of the goodness of God. We started this last week. We, we jumped into Genesis 1 and talked about the creation narrative. But the whole, the whole piece to this whole thing is this idea. The entirety of this book tells the true story of who God is. Tells the true story of what the gospel is, of where your place in reality is, of what freedom from sin looks like, of what life, of what your design means. It defines your reality and defines your place in it. It's what we call a formative story. Wherever you pick up in this book, in this Bible, wherever you are in the story, all roads lead back to Jesus. All roads lead back to grace, lead back to salvation. And our hope, our prayer as a church, is that all of us would be so well acquainted with this story that it actually becomes our formative story, right? That, that we actually are able to look at our lives, the details we live day to day, through the lens of the gospel narrative. That God is who he says he is. That the world is how God says it is. That his goodness, his truth for you is exactly what this book says. The catch to that, if you've ever read your Bible, uh, is that this book's kind of complicated, <laughs> right? It's kind of hard to figure out sometimes, especially if you just read through it. Sometimes it can be a little confusing. Uh, obviously, well worth the effort of engaging in it. But there are times where you just jump into a chunk of the Bible, especially like, right, like somewhere around February, like you hit New Year's and you do your, I'm going to read my Bible in the year plan, right? Like that, that, there's that Christian New Year's resolution. And somewhere around February, March, you find yourself somewhere in Leviticus and you're just going, what am I doing? <laughs> what does this mean? I'm reading this passage about moldy houses. Like what, what is this deal? And I'm here to tell you guys, this is the word of God. And this, this tells the true story about reality. That there is a God who's real, who's good, who wants what's best for his creation. That he made all things and made them good and perfect. That sin broke them and separated the creation from the creator. But God is not content to allow sin to have the final say on his good creation. So he promised that he would fix what sin broke. And he made that promise over and over, generation by generation, until that promise was completely fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. God in human form. The God-man who came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. Sinless. Tempted in every way as we are tempted, but completely without sin. Who earned eternity. Who earned salvation. Who earned communion with God. And yet took on the penalty for sin. That is death. That is separation. Paid the sin price, killed on the cross, but by the power of the Spirit of God, risen from the dead, returning into heaven, from which he will return and restore all things. All of us who come and trust in the gift of Jesus get to 
allow our sinfulness to be paid for by Christ's sacrifice and receive the fruit of his good and perfect life, his righteousness imparted to us. He takes our punishment, we take his reward. And when he returns, all who are found in him will be in perfect communion with God forever. That story, the story of this Bible, found Genesis to Revelation. That's the story this book tells. It's a formative story. It's a story that changes everything. Defines who we are, defines reality, defines our space in it. It's important. It's the story that allows us to look at our own lives, to hear these testimonies, and to see the movement of God. To see his good heart for us. To see the ways he seeks us out, the way he draws us from death to life, the way he forgives us of our sin, and the way he calls us into his good, amazing future for us. Amen. So, last week, we were in Genesis 1, we talked about the creation. This week, we're in Genesis 3, and we're talking about the reality of sin. A super fun sermon. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, listen, we really care about access to God's Word here at Emmanuel. So actually, underneath a bunch of the seats, there are Bibles. You're welcome to grab one and use it today. I want to encourage you, if you do not own a physical copy of God's Word, please feel free to take that Pew Bible home and keep it. Or talk to one of the pastors and we will get you a nicer copy of the Scripture, uh, maybe with slightly larger type. Today we're talking about the reality of sin. And we looked at the creation narrative. We, we spent time talking about this, this day seven picture in creation where the perfect and good God of the universe is sitting in communion and relationship with his creation. Nothing is wrong. Everything is as it should be. The story takes a dark turn from there, right? What we're going to see as we dig through this text, three main things I want us to consider as we work through this today. The first one is this. We're going to see in this text the reality that temptation to sin is unavoidable. If you are a creature and you live within a world where Satan exists, temptation is unavoidable. But it need not own you. It's inevitable, but giving into it isn't. Second, we're going to see that sin kills, period. Sin is death. Sin is deadly. It kills, and you ignore that fact at your own peril. We see that on full display in the text today. And lastly, and this is easily the most important of the three, we see that even though sin kills, Jesus resurrects. Sin is not the final word on creation. So, open your Bibles to Genesis 3. I'm going to give us a little bit of context before we read this because we're kind of skipping over Genesis 2. If you read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you kind of see this narrative play out. Genesis 1 tells the creation story in the form of this really beautiful and constructed and poetic narrative with this rhythm to it. Genesis 2 kind of retells and works through the same themes, but in a much more specific and intimate narrative form. You see God uh, working with, engaging the first two people, the man and the woman, 
uh, as, as they're called in Genesis 2. I know we call her Eve, but she doesn't get that, till, she doesn't get that name until later. Uh, man and woman in the garden, God relating to them. There's this, this beautiful space where God sets up space for them. He provides context for them. He gives them rules and boundaries and roles and tasks. And then he defines what is off limits for them. God sets up the creation and sets up the man and the woman within the creation as his caretakers in relationship with him, caring for the creation he's made. It's this beautiful picture. And by the way, it culminates in God bringing the woman to the man. And there's this beautiful scene where where God has looked at Adam, which just means man. God has looked at him in his loneliness and said, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he brings the woman to him. And Adam has this line where he says, ah, at last, out of all the creation, this, this is like me. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And so it's this beautiful image heading into Genesis 3. It's similar to how Genesis 1 ends, just this this day seven picture of beauty, perfection, intimacy, and connection. God has made all things. He's made them perfect. He's made them good. He's made them with purpose, and they are existing in perfect relationship to him and to each other. And then our text happens. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was also desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Reasonable response. Then he asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. 
for you were dust and you will return to dust. Then the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from the skins from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Ooh, that's a heavy text, right? It's a heavy story. Pray with me before we jump into this. Jesus, we, we just need you this morning. Spirit, we need you to be our teacher and to be our interpreter, Lord. I pray that you would just open our hearts uh, to what it is you have for us today. I pray for each and every one of us in this space, God, that you would just give us open ears, open eyes to see and to hear. You would remove distractions from us, remove lies from us, Lord, and that this would be a space we're able to just with clarity see you, see your truth for us, see the invitation you have for us. God, let each and every one of us leave this space today having met with you and having done the work our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. A heavy text, right? A lot going on. It really is, right? It's Pretty much the saddest part of the story, not, not going to lie, out, out of the whole deal. But it's very important. This, this sets up for us so much of what actually happens in the gospel story. God made everything perfect and good and in relationship with him. And on the other side of Genesis 3, it is not so. Things are no longer good. Things are no longer perfect. Things are no longer in relationship with their creator. Sin breaks what God set up. Sin sets up the whole reason that God makes promises. The the whole reason that God has to come alongside his creation and say, I will fix what is broken is because it got broken. The whole work of Jesus is to restore, to repair, to fix what sin has broken. To bring the creation in line with God's design for it. God's intentions for it. So this is a sad and heavy part of the story, but guys, it's an important part of the story. And we would be remiss if we allowed ourselves to skim past this part. I'm telling you guys, this has been weighing on my heart for a couple of weeks leading up to this. And the reason is this, we live on the other side of the cross. We live in the face of the grace of God, the unending well of the loving grace of Jesus. We can come to him over and 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 find his love, find his forgiveness, find his grace. And I think what for many of us that does is creates a space where we just don't take sin all that seriously. Because it's so, quote unquote, easily forgiven. All you need to do is come to Christ in genuine confession and he pours out his grace, his forgiveness, lavishly, which is true. The Bible teaches that. But the the trip, the the trick to that, the trap to that, is that does not mean sin's not a big deal. Although that is often our temptation. It really means that the love, the grace of God is that intense. That it can overpower, overpower such a huge deal. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk back through this narrative. It's probably familiar to our, our Sunday school brats in the room. Uh, and if it's not a familiar text to you, that's fine. We're, we're going to kind of dig through it, talk through it. Three main things I want us to see in this text as we work through it. First, is, I've already said these. First is the reality that temptation is inevitable. It's, it's a part of the world we live in. There's no escape from temptation in a world where Satan exists, period. But it need not own you. Falling, giving in to temptation, losing to temptation is not inevitable. The second thing we'll see is that sin is death. Do not downplay that idea. Sin kills. Sin is dehumanizing in a very, in a very intense and in a very important sense. We disregard or make light of sin at our own peril. And lastly, sin kills, but Jesus resurrects, which is the best news. It's the only way this story can go that doesn't end with all of us just weeping and gnashing our teeth. So let's walk through this text. The important piece of setup for this to understand what's going on in this text, is that in Genesis 2, God set everything up for the humans, for the man and the woman. He gave them a context. He put them in the garden. He provided for them. He gave them food. He gave them purpose and work and tasks to do. He ordered their world and told them, this is how reality works, and this is your place within it. And in the midst of that, God also gave them very specific boundaries. This is all for you. This is what you do. Do not do this. Do not eat of the tree in the center of the garden. For on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's intense. But it's important to to, to understand this piece of the context. Because essentially where we're picking up in a narrative that's already moving, you have the man and the woman, and all they have known, all they have known, is perfect, intimate relationship with their creator God. The entirety of their world is peace, love, connection to God, connection to one another. The text tells us that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed, which is a way of saying they were in such intimate, deep relationship that there was more alike about them than there was different about them. They had no shame with each other. In connection with each other, in connection with God, the way God designed them to be, Right? And our text picks up with a talking snake, which is already really weird. And by the way, if you grew up in church, you probably don't think it's that weird because you're just used to the story. But if you didn't grow up in church, this story starts with a talking snake, which is very strange. I don't know if you've hung out with snakes. They don't talk. They don't. They make these little like, and they like stick their tongue out. That's about as far as they go. If you hear more sounds than that from a snake, you're probably in trouble, right? (laughs) Snakes don't talk, which makes this story strange. And there is also this weird kind of two-sided imagery going on here. It's just, it's easy for us as modern Western readers to miss. But this piece is important because the author of of this story, as, as Moses is kind of setting this up for us, he's actually really concerned with you realizing this is just a snake. It's just a snake. So it's a creature God made. And by the way, God made all of his creatures good. The word crafty here is not, is not a negative term. 
But there's also a very real and important sense that the whole Bible teaches us. This is also Satan the accuser, right? There's this both and going on here that makes, it just makes for us, like we we want the narrative to be like a little simpler for us and it makes it a little confusing. But I need you to hold on to those pieces because it's not weird for the man and the woman to hang out with the snake. It isn't strange to them. They're not fearful of it. They have no reason to be. But what we know from the larger teaching of scripture is that this is Satan's interjection into God's perfect and perfect created order and perfect created relationship. And what we see in this first bit is really just this kind of prototype of how temptation works. And it essentially comes down to competing narratives. I don't know what you, if you noticed this as we read through it, but the way the serpent speaks to the woman is not with this bold, direct invitation to sin. This is not often how temptation works. Not that it's never this way, but it's not often that temptation is just a bold, in-your-face invitation to do something terrible. A voice in your head going, hey, what if you just, I don't know, like killed your whole neighborhood? Like, that's not usually where it goes. What Satan does instead in our text is he uses a mixture of half-truths, questions designed to grab a little bit of the truth and distort it into lie, mixed with actual good, godly desires of the target. He approaches the woman and picks at the good and holy desires God has placed within her heart and mixes those good and holy desires with half-truths and lies and doubts. And that subtly leads her away from the Lord. Subtly leads them both, by the way. Don't hear me singling out the woman. Subtly leads them away from the Lord and to death. And I cannot say it more starkly than that. What the serpent offers the woman here is a competing narrative. Remember, all they know of reality is what God has told them. Here's where you live. Here's how it works. Here's what you do. Here's who I am. Here's my rules for you. Live, joy, peace, connection. And the serpent comes along and goes, did God really do that? Is that really what he said? And just puts this little seed of doubt. And as you watch this interaction between the serpent and the woman, you see, right, the subtle picking at her desires. You know, God knows that if you ate that fruit, you'd be like him. That's a good desire for a creature of God made in his image to long to be like him. So he grabs a hold of that and says, here's a way you could do that. Here's a way you could have the desire of your heart. I know God said to do it this way, but I'm telling you, it would work better for you if you did it this way. And then beyond that, there's this fundamental lie that exists within all of temptation. And it's why I use this phrase of competing narratives. Last week, as we were going through Genesis 1, one of the things I pushed on was this fundamental theological assertion of the scripture that God, the creator of the universe, is good. That God is good, and he wants what is best for you. He desires good for his creation. This fundamental assertion of the scripture about the nature and the character of God. Satan comes along and says, actually, 
God is unknown. And he actually is holding out on you. You see that? See the difference there? God is good. He wants what's best for you. He gave you everything you need. He gave you the garden. He gave you the structure. He gave you purpose. He gave you boundaries for your good and for your health. And Satan comes along and says, I don't think you know God as well as you think you do. He's holding out on you. If you really want the desire of your heart, you should do this. Hands her, hands them both a different narrative of how the world works. A different formative story. Not that God is good, but rather that God is unknown. Not that God wants good for his creation, but rather God holds out on his creation. He keeps back from them things that they want, things that they long for. And Satan says, here is a way for you to get what you want. It just so happens to be a different way than what God has prescribed for you. So insidious. I I think it's important for us to sit in that for a moment because this is how all temptation works. Each and every one of you experiences temptation on a daily basis. You live within a fallen and sinful world. You have a fallen and sinful heart. Satan is real and he seeks to kill and destroy. That's That's the reality of the world we live in. Temptation is a daily companion for all of us. And temptation always comes back. Always. Every single time. To a false narrative. This is a different and better way for you to get what you want. I know God has said this. I know you think of God this way. But actually it's like this. Actually you will do better to move on your own to seek your own betterment, to seek your own fulfillment, to take matters into your own hands. All temptation comes back to that. An alternative narrative of who God is and what he thinks of you. And guys, here's the piece to this. That's unavoidable. That's a normal part of living within the world we live in. You don't get away from it. And and I think we need to sit in that for a minute, because there's a couple important things here. The first one is, guys, temptation claims to offer you choices. Well, I know you've read, you've heard this at church. I know that scripture teaches this. I know you believe this about God. But what if this? What if you took matters into your own hand? What if you're wrong about that? What if God isn't really like that? What if, what if, what if? Temptation offers you seemingly choices. But what it really offers you, beloved, is death. Listen, hear this. There are not ways to find your fulfillment, your life, your joy, your freedom. There are not a plurality of roads that lead to the perfect design humanity was made for. There is a way that leads to the design God had for you. And it is the word of the Lord. There are not multiple paths to go down and pick and choose your own adventure. The only choice temptation hands you is, would you like to trade your life for death? Guys, when you put it that way, it's a bad choice, (laughs) right? It's not great. It's what temptation hands you. But here's the amazing thing. Temptation is not sin, right? It's not. 
Receiving temptation doesn't mean you're some terrible, awful monster. It means you live in this world. For some of you, if you're a little more guilt-driven, it's easy to be like, well, Satan wouldn't tempt me with that if that wasn't the deep-down evil, gross desire of my heart. Yeah, but your heart's pretty terrible. I had to tell you that. Like, <laughs> you like sin. You're a sinner. Temptation doesn't make you horrible. Temptation is just a fact. Just a fact. Everyone experiences temptation. Everyone experiences temptations that are embarrassing. If you got an open window into the passing and intrusive thoughts that pop into everyone's head in this room, you wouldn't want to hang out in this room. (laughs) That's how human brains work. That's how sinful, fallen hearts work. We're all tempted. And we all have temptations we'd rather not anyone else know about. But praise be to God. Temptation is not a sin, and temptation is not a sentence. Temptation doesn't own you. It's not inevitable. The experience of the temptation is inevitable. Giving into it is not. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has come over you except what is common to humanity. Everyone has them. There's no temptation you've ever received that is not common to humanity. Hear that. Satan loves to tell you you're on an island on your own. You're a freak. No one is like you. Look how terrible you are. There is no temptation that has come upon you that is not common to humanity, beloved. We're all like that. But God, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may bear it. That exists. That's the promise of the scripture. Temptation is unavoidable. Giving in to temptation is not. By the power of the living God, the Spirit of God who dwells within those who belong to him, you are able to escape temptation. You're able to endure temptation. Because the temptation is not the sin. The temptation is just the competing narrative. It's just the lie that comes along and says, I know you think the world's like this. I know you think God's like this. But what if he's actually like this? Wouldn't it be smart for you to act on that? But beloved, you don't have to. You don't. The Lord is faithful. He won't put you in a temptation that is inevitable for you to fail. He won't put you in something you can't bear. The Spirit of God, Spirit of God, It's in you if you are in Christ. He will make a way of escape for you. So, flee idolatry, flee temptation. Run away from that junk. Tell Satan that his lies are lies. Come back to the truth. God is good. God wants what's best for you. God's way for you is not a way, it is the way to life and freedom. Period. Come back to the truth. Speak the truth. Preach the truth to your own heart. For our purposes of our text today, it doesn't go down like that, BT'd up. The man and the woman hear the competing narrative and they believe it. And they believe the lie. And they take the fruit and they eat. And sin enters the world. And look at the results. I, I don't think there are, there are few texts in Scripture that so clearly show how insanely, how intensely sin kills. 
Before sin, Adam and Eve were defined by their similarity, by their connection. But immediately, when sin enters the picture, relationship is broken. They realize they are naked. They are different. They are separate. And in this realization, they are immediately ashamed. The first thing they do is cover and divide from one another further. Once there was intimacy, once there was connection, now on the other side of sin, there is separation. Then they hide. God comes to speak to them, which is amazing in its own ways, and we could spend time focusing on that. But, 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 but now, their relationship to God is fundamentally changed. And when he enters into the garden to speak to them, they do not want him to know them as they are in their sin. So they hide. It would be funny if it weren't so sorrowful to think of man and woman hiding from the creator God of the universe behind leaves, right? It also might be funny if we didn't know that this is exactly what we do with the Lord God when we are living into the flesh and living into sin. We act as though hiding and staying away from him will somehow keep him from knowing the depth of our sin. So we avoid prayer. We avoid the scripture. We avoid spiritual disciplines. We avoid connection with the church because somehow we think isolation will keep God from knowing. But beloved, he is the creator of the universe. He tells your heart to keep beating each beat. He tells the atoms that make up the cells, that make up the muscles, that make up your arm to continue to exist. He knows. You don't hide from him. Certainly not with isolation. Certainly not behind leaves. The Lord God knows. Nothing is hidden from him. And yet, and yet, look at God's gracious engagement of the man and the woman in their sin. In their, in their guilt, in their shame, in their hiding, he does not stomp into the space with anger and accusation. Instead, he asks questions. He gives them a chance to explain the situation. Not, not to explain their sin away, that's not the invitation here, but to genuinely confess, to come to him with the truth, to come to him asking for help. It reminds me of Romans 2. Do, do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint, his patience, not recognizing that it is the kindness of God that is intended to lead you to repentance? Beloved, it is the kindness of God. They can draw us out of our hiding, draw us out of our shame, draw us out of our sin, and draw us out of our rebellion into confession, into grace. It's kindness. The Lord doesn't stomp in the room mad at you. The Lord comes to you already knowing, in love and patience and grace, giving you space to come to him and fess up. Such a beautiful picture. But the people's response, the man and woman's response, is the absolute opposite of confession and repentance. Instead, they actually dig their heels in on the false narrative. They are, they are in this moment. No, no, you are not like you say you are. We have figured it out. We know the real thing. And so they separate even further. They draw even deeper into isolation and they cast blame. And Adam blames the woman. And the woman blames the serpent. Just a few verses ago, just a few verses ago, the woman was completing God's creation because it was not good for man to be alone. 
And now, man is looking at God's provision and accusing God of creating his problems through his provision. It's this woman you gave me, it's her fault. And the woman is looking at God's good creation. The animals that creep along the ground that he made that were good and perfect and saying, it's their fault. They're holding on to the false narrative. You're not actually good and the things you provide don't actually give us good. This is on you. It's intense. They cling to the lie and they push away the truth of who God is. It has all fallen apart. Everything is broken. It's really just, it's just sad to read it. Especially on the other side, especially with the hindsight to just see how poorly it's going, how quickly the thing crumbles. But the reality is at this point, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Sin has entered the world. Relationship is broken. Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, were given the easiest choice in all of human history. <laughs> right? Do you want perfect, eternal relationship with your creator living exactly as you were made to live? Or would you like to die? And they chose death when offered that deal. By the way, it's easy to give them a hard time for that. But I want you to consider something before you get a little too judgy. The man and the woman lived in a world with no sin. With no sin. All they knew was the goodness of God before that moment. And temptation still drew them away from God. Still. Temptation is powerful. Sin is enticing. It's intoxicating. That's not a testament to how terrible the man and woman were. It's a testament to how powerful sin is. Don't, don't think that you might fare better in the same scenario as what I'm saying, right? Temptation's a powerful force. It's why just literally a chapter later, God would tell Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to master you. But beloved, beloved, take hope. Do not lose heart. You can still conquer sin. In Christ, with the present power of God, the spirit dwelling within you, this text pushes us not to hopelessness, not to despair. Look how powerful sin is. Look how crafty and wily and, and look how, how much Satan is able to destroy all of God's good. No, 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 no. It should sober us because temptation is powerful and sin is a big deal. But this text should push us to the truth that sin kills. You should take it seriously. You ignore the deadliness of sin at your own peril. Which again, that temptation exists for those of us who by the grace of God live on the other side of the cross. Where the grace of Jesus is freely available day by day. It is so easy to just kind of sharpie out that poison label on the bottle of sin and just not worry about it. But beloved, sin is death. Sin kills. Sin separates we see this as the text continues in verse 14, kind of on. God begins to describe the reality of a world that is broken by sin. Because of sin, the world is cursed. Suffering now exists. Things that God made good and perfect are now hard and painful. Things like childbirth, things like the gift of marriage, things like caring for the earth, things like finding food. These are all now hard, difficult, painful. This is what sin does to God's good creation. It distorts this. But here's the part that I think is interesting. 
that I think is actually kind of vital for our kind of walking through this text today. God told the people in chapter 2 that the consequence of sin, eating the fruit, would be death. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't, right? I mean, a whole bunch of stuff happens afterward, right? They have time to go sow fig leaves. They go on and live their life. They plant crops. They have children. The human race continues. They live hundreds of years after this moment that seems kind of anticlimactic to on the day you eat of it, surely you will die. But like, you know, 700 years later, that seems kind of strange, which I think leads us to the question of what's God actually saying here? What's meant by this idea of death on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. I think this piece is vitally important for us. What we see in this truth is that we as humans are more than simply creatures. You are more than simply a body. The death of a human is not defined by whether or not the heart is currently beating. It's an important truth. That defines death for an animal. But you are not simply an animal. You're made in the image of God. You are an embodied soul. There is more to you than flesh and blood and a beating heart. We're made in the image of God, made for communion with him, made for connection with him. At the moment of sin, the man and woman's hearts didn't stop beating, but what they were died. What they were died in sin. Perfect God-like creatures in perfect unity with the creator. You know what I think one of the most twisted parts of the story is? What, What Satan offers the woman this desire of her heart. Well, if you eat of it, you will be like God. It's a beautiful and valid desire. There's one problem with it. She was already like God. God made her that way. Man and woman were made in his image, perfectly like him. So Satan promised them something they already had. And in the promise, damaged what already existed. In that moment, these perfect, good, God-like creatures living in perfect unity and relationship with their creator, that died. What humans were made to be died in that moment. And that's heavy. It's heavy. You're made as the crown of creation. And we have fallen from that. And by the way, this is where our text ends today. God's perfect creation is ruined. (laughs) This is a really sorrowful place to land, but it's so important. Now, I say ruined, it's still there, right? The atoms are still there. The laws, the processes that God set up are still functioning, but it is inherently different. It's hard, it's painful, it's wrong. It's not the perfect good that we saw on day seven with the resting God enjoying his good creation. Instead, it's broken and it's distorted. So what do we do with this? Is this a text that you just read and go, man, that's really sad. Those guys really screwed it up. That's super unfortunate. I guess we just move on to the next part. Yes. But what I think is so beautiful about this is that when you read a text like this, you're struck with the presence of temptation. It's unavoidable. It's powerful. You should take it seriously. We're struck with the weightiness of sin. Sin kills. It is a lie. It is death. You, You ignore that at your own peril. But that is not the end of the story. 
Even in this chunk, even in the second chapter of our larger gospel narrative, in Genesis 3, even in the moment when sin is breaking everything, the story of this book is still pointing forward to the person of Jesus and his accomplished work on your behalf. In chapter 3, verse 15, as, as God himself is laying out the curse, describing the reality of a sinful and broken world. In the midst of that, he says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman. This is to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head as you bruise his heel. Praise be to God. But the God of the universe is not content to allow sin to be the final word on his creation. Even in this moment, Even in describing the reality of the broken, sinful world, God is prophesying, promising that he will fix what sin has broken. It's a gospel prophecy from God to his creation. Sin will not have the final say, but something will slay the serpent. God will fix it. What joy. What hope. God will not allow this to stand. But God is also sober about the reality of the fix for sin. The only result of sin is death. So to cover the shame of sin, of humanity, God kills animals, sheds their blood, and makes clothes. This is practical. This is real. Death and blood are required to cover over the effects of sin. Which is the way this text draws us to the larger gospel story. It points in a straight line to the person of Jesus. God's promise to restore all things is perfectly fulfilled in our sweet Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man. The son of Eve, but perfectly divine. Born into a sinful world, but never giving in to temptation ever. Living a perfect life and then still paying the sin price of death. His perfect blood is shed. And while an innocent animal's blood may cover sin, the perfect blood of Jesus destroys Sin. His love makes a way to actually counteract the reality of the curse, to restore the creation to the day seven that we were made for. Beloved, Jesus and his accomplished work on your half makes you human again. Human as you were made to be. Perfectly perfected in his image in relationship with him and with his creation. So, a couple thoughts to land us today. I've talked too long. I'll give you two thoughts. The first one is this. If you're in this space today, and, I don't, and I'm serious when I say this, regardless of where you find yourself in your faith journey, if you're in this space today and you've known Jesus for decades, if you're in this space today and you know that you are not in Christ and you're considering it and you're thinking through the claims of Jesus, I think this text today encourages you to trust him. Trust him. Trust what he says about you. Trust what he says about the world. Beloved, God is good. He's good. He wants what's best for you. He wants good for his creation. He longs for good for you. You can trust that truth. You can trust Jesus today. It's accomplished work on your behalf. If you're in this place and you've never done that before, I would encourage you, consider the invitation of Jesus. Consider his accomplished sacrifice on your behalf. We are all tempted and we all sin. I don't care how holy you are. You're not holy enough to balance out your own scales. 
You're not holy enough to live the life Jesus lived. He lived a perfect life, experiencing every temptation we experience and rejecting all of them. Actually, actually earning salvation. A work none of us can accomplish. And yet he takes the fruit of that labor and says, come, eat of my garden. Take the fruit of my work. Experience the bounty of what I've accomplished. I will gladly take the punishment, the consequence of your sinful action and hand to you the fruit of my holiness. It's true. That is the narrative Christ hands to you. Trust me. Drink from the well of grace and receive life without end. Receive forgiveness from sins. Receive restoration to be the human you were made to be. I'm telling you guys, that's a way better narrative than anything a snake is going to hand you. I'm telling you. Trust Jesus. Even if you know that, even if you've been following Christ for decades, trust Jesus. That story is still true. Just because you've known Christ for decades doesn't mean you haven't believed a couple lies in the last few years. It doesn't mean that sin patterns haven't become comfortable. It doesn't mean that you have stopped considering the deadliness of sin and allowed it to become a normative part of your life. It doesn't mean that you haven't fallen into the temptation and trap to abuse the grace of God, to, see, to stop even seeking to grow in holiness, but rather just to say things like, that's just how I am. I don't know, I just talk too much sometimes, but really what you mean is I love the sin of gossip and I have no intention of repenting of it. Beloved, trust Jesus. He forgives that. He has grace for that. He can change that. Don't fall into the trap of just saying, I just speak my mind. And really what you mean is you are hateful and you sin in your anger. Trust Jesus. Repent to him. Call that sin what it is, death. Draw it to the light. Draw it to him. See what he does. The story of Jesus is the story of life, beloved. The story of Jesus is the story of grace. He takes whatever you hand him. I could go down the list of the million different sins we love and have become comfortable with and have allowed to have a permanent place in our life with no intention of actually engaging them. And we all know they're there. So trust Jesus. Secondly, don't take temptation lightly. Don't take sin lightly. Beloved, temptation is a lie and sin is death. Do not ignore it. Don't forget that. Temptation is a lie and sin is death. Don't flirt with that. That is the opposite of what you were made for. You were made for the love and freedom of Christ. Temptation draws you away from that, away from God and toward death. There's a very real sense that sin seeks to make you less human. Less as God intended you to be. Don't, don't mess with that. Don't ignore that. Beloved, this is a space, this is a family where there is no shame and no condemnation. You can draw your real self into the light. You can be confessional. Those sins that you're comfortable with, those sins that have spots on your calendar because you schedule them out because you like them so much, those sins that you have the deepest shame about that you don't want anyone to know and you'll take to the grave, beloved, you can draw those to the light. Jesus loves you. 
Jesus forgives you. Jesus has grace for you. You can trust what Jesus tells you about yourself, about your sin, about this world. And beloved, this church will walk with you in that, I promise. Promise. Your pastors love you. Your brothers and sisters love you. We will walk through this journey with you. Don't take temptation and sin lightly. Temptation is a lie. Flee from it. Reject it. Sin is death. By the grace of God, sin may kill, but Jesus resurrects. So I'm going to end us with this. Band, if you guys want to come up, I'm going to invite you guys to take a minute to pray. They're actually going to uh, sing a song over you guys while you pray. But I'm going to do this to end our time. I'm going to read us from Romans chapter 6 and I would encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn over to Romans 6 and read this with me. I'm going to read the entirety of this text to you guys. I'd encourage you to follow it and look at it. Let these words be spoken over you. Let these words be part of your prayer. As I finish reading, I'll pray and then they'll sing a song. I'd encourage you to consider. Consider the truth that Jesus says about you, about your sin, and about his response to it. And then we'll end our time with communion. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God and Christ Jesus. Therefore, church... Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. Do not offer any of your parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. 
For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in your sanctification. For you were once slaves of sin. You were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. Verse 22. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. For beloved, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for freedom from sin. Thank you for your accomplished work on the cross. Thank you for real life. Jesus, for each and every one of us in this room, regardless of where we are in our journey with you, Lord, I pray that today you would take us another step toward freedom, toward eternity. For those of us who are far from you, I pray that you would prick our hearts, you would draw us to conviction, you would draw us to repentance, that we might receive your salvation. For those of us who are in you, Christ, I pray that you would draw us to further repentance, that we would reject the sin that we love, that we would reject the temptation that we seek out, and that we would find deeper freedom, deeper holiness in you, even today. We need you, Jesus. We need you to do this work in our heart. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Beloved, they're going to sing a song. You're welcome to sing along with it, but I would encourage you to take a few minutes, maybe look back over that text, and just talk to Jesus. See what he says to you. No.
We're going to conclude our gathering today by taking communion. So if you have the elements, go ahead and get those ready. If you don't have them, we have them available in the back of the room there. Like Pastor Sam just walked us through this story, we see that from the very first moments of this curse taking hold, we see that God himself provides a way for our sin, our curse, our punishment, this death, to be covered over by something else's death. We see God kill an animal and use the skins of these animals to cover over the shame of Adam and Eve. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God continues to provide this system, this sacrificial system that by something else's death, your death may be put off, your death may be covered over. We see it in Passover that God allows this lamb to be killed, its blood to be put on the the people's door and the death to pass over their homes. We see it in the sacrificial system that is created in the temple. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And that's what we get to continue today. But we don't continue by killing something and allowing its blood to cover over our sin. We continue it by rejoicing in the fact that Jesus, once and for all, paid that price, that Jesus's death was sufficient to cover over every single sin, every single punishment that we will face or not face now because of his, his amazing sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that, that Paul gives us this um, description of the Lord's Supper. And we read this pretty much every week. And he says at the very end of it, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What he's saying is we proclaim the sufficiency of the Lord's death for us until he comes back. That his death was sufficient. His body broken, his blood poured out for us was sufficient to pay the price, to pay the penalty of our sin. And we take this cup and this bread because we are proclaiming the sufficiency of him. So let's do that. Take the bread. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, take the bread, break it, And eat it. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, take the cup, the representation of Jesus' blood, and drink it in remembrance of him.
We always end our gathering with a benediction. And a benediction is just us proclaiming a truth over you that we want you to hold on to for this week. Sam just read this amazing passage from Romans chapter 6. He told us about sin and the effects of sin and our freedom from sin. We're going to go out this week and we are going to face temptation. Probably today, Satan will try to present you with this false narrative. He'll try to present you with something that will tell you that this will be better for you. It's just simply not true. God's way is the best way. Just as Kim proclaimed out over us, I want to proclaim Romans chapter 8 verse 1 over you as you go out this week. Because it doesn't matter what the lie is, it doesn't matter what the temptation is, you are free from your sin and you can walk in Christ's life. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, you can go this week free of sin in Jesus's life. And I pray you do. I pray that this week you will experience no condemnation. You will experience the law of love and of life in Christ Jesus. We love you. I hope that we will get to see you in gospel communities if your community is starting this week and hopefully next week back here. To a place I've never been. To a You call me your own. You call-